Politics Uncensored with Ali Milani. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Politics Uncensored. I'm Ali Milani. I'm joining you for another week of politics and news from across the UK. Joining me this week, we've got a huge array of really exciting guests, including Mohammed Amin, former chairman of the Conservative Muslim Network, uh, about Islamophobia in the Conservative Party. We have seen a huge amount of outcry over Lee Anderson's comments and more. We've got Ben Jamal, director of Palestine Solidarity Campaign, about the government's pushing back against the pro-Palestinian protests. But before we get to them, we do the week unwrapped. That's where we discuss the biggest political stories of the week. And joining me in the studio this week is Sam Samuel K, political commentator, social media. Inf- I'm going to call you an influencer. I hope that's okay. Uh, joining me in the studio, Sam, how are you keeping? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you doing? I am surviving. Uh, It's been a crazy week in politics from, uh, I think, from the House of Commons making fools out of themselves from on the Gaza ceasefire vote all the way to Lee Anderson's comments um, and the storm around uh, Islamophobia. And I think I want to start us there, if that's okay. And this has been the major news story over the last week. Uh, Coming out of Lee Anderson's uh, comments uh, about Sadiq Khan, more than half of Tory members in a poll say Islam is a threat to British way of life. Figures uh, for the party is twice proportional among uh, the overall population and comes amid a row uh, over comments, including the likes of Lee Anderson and Suella Braverman uh, about Sadiq Khan. The poll of 521 Conservative members by opinion found that 58% say Islam poses a threat to this country, uh, double the proportion of the overall population who believe the same. I mean, that's quite concerning in and of itself. Um, It found that 52% believe the increasingly prominent conspiracy theory that parts of European cities are under Sharia law and are no-go areas for non-Muslims. So I'm going to get your initial responses to, first of all, the poll around Tory members showing that uh, 58% believe Islam poses a threat to this country. I think it's... uh a result largely of the way that Tory ministers like Lee Anderson conduct themselves in public, the things they're saying in public. I think that when I look at Lee Anderson's comments, if I just may expand on this, I I see a diversion tactic largely. I think people like Lee Anderson, whether Braverman, Tory party, they've largely destroyed the country over the last 13 years, to be frank, uh, through austerity, all, all sorts of things. And what they're now trying to do is the classic divide, mm-hmm. you know, division where they try to attack minority groups, um, attack the Muslim community. And, you know, I, I just find it disgusting. I mean, you know, I've growing up, I've experienced racism. I've seen racism. But, you know, I, I, I kind of maybe was naive in thinking that it perhaps wouldn't get to the level where we see top ministers, mm-hmm. you know, just saying things and other ministers coming out and kind of not really condemning it as well. Yeah, I caught a lot of heat for this this week because I said essentially um, I called Lee Anderson a one-trick pony. 30p Lee, by the way. Yeah, 30p Lee, a one-trick pony. And the reason I said that is, look, he plays this character of, and we've seen it in other politicians, the the no-shit-talking, straight-talking bravado MP, and he's saying what everyone else is thinking. Yeah. And, you know... The problem with that is that that kind of politician that is saying what everyone else is thinking and is non-PC and is anti-woke, it's always the same thing with them, and that's attacking vulnerable people. That's the only kind of politics they have, right? We're talking about Muslims here. You've talked about you experiencing racism, but what we've seen from Lee Anderson is attacking working-class communities, attacking Muslims, attacking migrants, attacking refugees. Mm -hmm. They just have one tactic, no? That's it. That's like 100% nail on the head. I've, I've, you know, this has been been saying this. I've kind of been in politics, if you will, since like 2016, 2017, and it's always been the same tactic. Uh, during austerity as well, that period it was the it was the poor, it was the disabled who had their benefits cut. That was a result of trying to get the public to turn, and also on benefits as well, demonizing those on benefits. There's always somebody there to take the blame for what are actually Tory policies that have been implemented that have destroyed people's lives. We're talking about austerity. We're talking about the ways that um, you know NHS has been NHS has been cut to the bone. Waiting mm-hmm. times are at historic highs. So I think that. Yeah, this is a way for uh, Lee Anderson, and I think they're going to continue engaging in this. I think that, you know, the right, the right in this country, and this is what I'm very fearful about. I feel like the right in this country are looking to the uh, to to America. 
mm-hmm. to the United States. Trumpism. You, you see, yeah, Trumpism. You see Liz Truss at CPAC. I think it was last week. Yeah. Very scary stuff. Sat next to Steve Bannon. Sat next to Steve Bannon. This alliance coming from the hard right of the Tory party. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's it's really concerning. And I think you're right. It is this distraction tactic. But I I think there's a difference between Lee Anderson and Sola Braverman for me. Mm. Uh, This is just my theory, right? Humor me. I think Lee's an idiot. Okay. I think Lee believes in what he's saying. I believe that. Uh, I I genuinely just think he's a moron. Mm. I don't think Suella Braverman's an idiot. Mm. I, I think Suella Braverman recognizes that the standard conservative model is dead because they've destroyed the country. That sort of David Cameron, Rishi Sunak, all that kind of stuff. They've always run on their record of the economy. We're safe with the economy. Labour destroyed the economy, even though that is complete nonsense. But Labour destroyed the economy. We're a safe pair of hands. That's gone because the country has gone to shit from the NHS waiting times to inflation, yeah. cost of living, That's everything, Right. right? So, so I think Suella Braverman has realized the only conservative victory is through culture clashes, culture wars, and attacking the most vulnerable and stirring up this hatred. Yeah. And that, that sort of Trumpism is her way into power. I actually think Suella is running to be the next conservative leader as we speak. I, right? She recognizes they're going to lose the general election and she's actually running for leader right now. One, 100%. Um, firstly, I think you're correct about that assessment about her being more astute <laughs> than, yeah. than Lee Anderson. Because some of them are just idiots. Some of the Tories are just morons. But I don't think she's one of those. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think I think that she's astute and I think that she knows what she's doing. Um, but yeah, I think that the Conservatives see the writing on the wall electorally. Um, and as they should, obviously, there's been 13 years of, of total failure. But I, I, and just to mirror your point, actually, I saw a report that Nigel, I don't know if you've seen this, but Nigel Farage was caught, uh, saying, was welcoming Suella Braverman into uh, reform. Reform, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that that's very interesting. Yeah, I they think, tried watch, to get Lee to join as yes, well. Yes, yes, as well. So watch this space. I think that you're, you're, yeah, you're right. I think the, the radical right in this country are on the up. You know, mm-hmm. they're trying to, they see the writing on the wall and they're trying to secure a more... Yeah. I, uh, we did a political prediction sh- yeah. uh, on the show. The first episode we did in 2024... We had a bunch of journalists and stuff here, and we all did political predictions of what we think 2024 is going to look like. And my prediction was that I think Labour is going to win the general election. Yes. I think Suella is going to win the leadership race, um, or someone of her ilk is going okay, to win yes. the leadership race. The radical right, yeah. And they're going to welcome Nigel Farage into the Tory party. Interesting. And I see that. Yeah. I, I see it. And just to add to your, the point about Labour, just if I could, I feel like Labour will win, yes. But I th- and I was just saying this to someone else the other day. I think it will be historically low turnout. Oh right. Okay. If if yeah. if anything, or if anything, um, of the uh, recent by elections are to judge by, obviously we know by elections they are obviously lower turnout yeah. than the general. But even still, I've been, I've been looking at the averages for yeah, they're lower than they're lower yeah. than even yeah. that. So I think that a, I mean, a lot look, Labour's going to win just because how pissed people are yes. with with the. Cons- I mean, my cat would be would win <laughs> as as a Labour candidate right yes, now, and that's, that's right. largely because of the anger towards right. conservatives. Yeah. One thing I want to touch on before we move on from the story, yes. um, <clears throat> one of the big parts of the story is. Not actually the conservative um, MPs and public figures, but the the members, the members of the public, in essence. Um, There is a tendency, I think, for people to say, well, look, the fucking public is racist, Mm. right? Look how, like, shit Britain is, for example. I don't believe that, right? How much of this do you think is uh, the public just following the narrative that the political establishment sets? Because what we've had... I don't, I don't know how well, I think we're about the same age, right? I think for most of our like adult political lives, we've had attacks on working class people, people who take benefits, disabled people, migrants, all that kind of stuff. And the political establishment, there's been no pushback really on it. Some from Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, but, yeah. but, but again, there wasn't much space to do that because of all the other yes. stuff going on. So the normal public discourse is that the country's in a state either because of migration or refugees or the the brown family next door i think it's first of all i'm not gonna uh claim that i know like you know which it is but i one thing i i I feel like i look at this a lot and it is a question that i i think about there is a lot there is a concerted effort but like we we spoke about the us and also in the uk by billionaire press to demonize certain Mm -hmm. groups and but what i'm saying is there's no pushback there's no political lead like i would expect right and look this as a member of the Labour Party, I've been a council candidate, all this yeah, kind of, yeah. everybody knows who I am. What I would want us for us to do is to draw a line in the sand and go, no, 
the waiting lists in your hospitals are not because of migrants and refugees and working class communities. Yeah, they're because. Of, but we're not really making that argument. As as in as in the Labour leadership as currently. yeah. 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 No, oh, and yeah. by the way, I'm not just having a go. At, I, I am saying yeah. Keir yeah. needs to do more. But the Labour established even Ed didn't do it. Yeah. No. I, I mean. Uh, yeah. I, I I feel like for me, the Labour leadership for a very very long time has been a complete uh, disappointment. Mm-hmm. I've I I I don't want to sound. You know, pessimistic and doomerism, but I've I long since have given up hope or expectations of care, uh, or, no, of 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 that they would present themselves in a way that's you know that you know to like you said to to protect minority groups to come out and and yeah. and forcefully fight. Same with um you know even with uh, the Democrats in 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 uh, in the states, they don't really fight for minority. They come yeah. out and they do you know they say you must vote for us. They love our votes. Yeah, but. But when it's time to actually yeah. advocate for us. So I guess what I'm asking is, you know, the fact that 58% of Tory voters mm. think Islam poses a threat to the country. Yes. I think it's over like 26 or 27% of the general population do. Right. What I'm asking is, is that surprising given that Muslims and minorities are being attacked by the Tories and not really defended by Labour? I think that that number would be lower if mm-hmm. we did, like like we've discussed, if we did have a Labour leadership that was more forceful with that but I think that I don't know. It's it's a bit of like a cycle, isn't it? Because y- you know you have people who, let's be real, are attracted to a, to a mm-hmm. certain type of politics, and yeah. then you also have a media which is an embo- which is ever more emboldening that type of rhetoric. So I feel like those yeah. things are feeding into each it's other. It's just easy narrative as well, right? If you're sat in an A and E waiting room and it's filled to the brim and you've not seen someone for eight hours, exactly, which I was in the case of doing, and Nigel Farage comes across and goes, "Hey, Sam." See that black family or that brown family, they've gone in before you. That's the problem. There's too many people in this country. That's an easy narrative to buy than to say chronic decade-long underfunding in the NHS has broken the system. Absolutely. It's it's low-hanging fruit. You know, it's it's the idea that, you know, we don't have to really think about these things deeply. We can just blame, I don't know, maybe the black person down the road, they're they're the ones making the waiting times go up. Yeah. Yeah. So in conclusion, Lee Anderson's a waste, man. We're going to move on to story number two. (laughs) 30p Lee. (laughs) 30p Lee. I'm still waiting. He's... <laughs> I've I've put out so many breadcrumbs for him to have a go at me, and he's not oh, had a go. Oh, on Twitter. <coughs> yeah, leave, oh, please. No. <laughs> Stop ignoring me. I'm desperately attention seeking here. And By the way, I heard he used to be a Labour councillor. He did. How that's, embarrassing! That's crazy. Is that? How me. embarrassing! I, wow. Is that? Yeah. I mean, the fact that he ever felt comfortable to be on a <laughs> Labour ticket mm. is crazy. Miss Julie thinking of you. Um, story number two, MPs facing threats to their secure- safety will get extra security as part of a £31 million package to help protect the UK's democratic process from disruption. The government has announced measures could include the provisions of bodyguards for MPs most at risk. The funding will also be used for additional patrols in response to increased community tension. Home Secretary James cleverly uh, said... Uh, MPs should have to accept, should not, said no MP, sorry, uh, no MP should have to accept threats uh, or harassment as part of their job. There has been growing concern in recent months of MP safety since the outbreak of the war in Gaza. I wanna, I'm going to talk about Gaza in a second because I actually think um, this story is a little bit more insidious than it looks. But I just want to ask you a quick question about MP, MP safety. We've had two MPs killed um, yes. in, in recent years. Uh, I'm I'm asking, initially, let's completely divorce Gaza and what's happening as a response yes. to this. Um, I was on LBC Cross Questions this week, and we had two MPs on, um, Siobhan and uh, Anna Firth, who was a Tory MP. And in the green room, I asked them, what would you think about every MP getting a bodyguard? Because that's something that kind of happens in America. Every senator yeah, has yeah, a yeah. bodyman. Um, initially, just your gut feeling, what do you think about MPs getting bodyguards? Because their reaction was, it would just put distance between us and constituents, and it's not really needed. Yeah, I mean, this is a tough one. And, you know, because and, you know, as you you opened up and mentioned two MPs that have been unfortunately tragically killed, which obviously is unacceptable when you condemn political violence. And this is where, like, obviously, you know, I could condemn political violence, but also we don't want a situation where, as you mentioned, constituents feel they, they already feel miles apart from their MPs. So there is a concern that perhaps this could be just another barrier to them but yeah. i don't know because I, I, I think that's what yeah. one of the things people say is one of the best things about our democracy i mean the d- democratic process is so broken with first past the post right. and stuff but right. one of the better elements is compared to other countries access to your mps is quite yeah, easy yeah, that's right. whereas if you start to introduce security measures where there are bodyguards and they're locked away and you can only ever see them through that and, sort of appointment yeah then they do start to get further and further away from the community yeah and, and once again you know like i say you know 
I, I understand, you know, we've had two MPs have been killed, you know, which is tragic. And I can understand that, you know, with heightened political tensions, you know, MPs feel vulnerable and, you know, I, I can understand that side. But um, I, th I think that this is a topic that's probably going to be discussed more. And I think that I'm kind of just like following the details. I mm -hmm. want to see more about the funding. I want to see what's what's happening, what's happening there. But yeah. OK, so now let's move on to the Gaza element of the story. Yes, because this has really been kicked off following Common Speaker Sir Lindsay Hall citing threats to politicians in his controversial handling of the debate for a ceasefire yeah. in uh, uh, in the Houses of Commons. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has also raised concerns about MPs being verbally threatened and physically and violently targeted. Uh, off the bat, I want to say, I have been talking about this way before any of these guys, right? When I was candidate in 2019, yeah. I got more death threats than almost anyone else in the yes. country. Um, in fact, uh, I was one of the few people that had to have police presence at all of my campaign events. Um, and in one instance, we actually did have someone come with the intention uh, of harm. So I absolutely take the issue seriously. But... I am skeptical about the way this is being framed, mm -hmm. um, whereby we've had over a million people in London specifically, but also also all across the country. Like 600 protests or something. Well, okay. uh, over a million overall yeah, yeah. that have attended protests every week. Uh, we've had about 600 arrests, 600 arrests. Yeah, sorry, which, is, which is very small, right? When you think about over a million people have attended. It seems to me that there is a deliberate attempt to smear, demonize, these pro-Palestinian protesters I don't really like the term pro-Palestinian protesters. They're just people who object to pro-human rights. Yeah, anti-genocide protesters. How much of that do you think is playing a factor here, in which there is an attempt by politicians who are clearly out of step with public opinion, according both to the protests and to opinion polls, to slander yep. over a million people who've come to the streets who've just asked for babies to stop being blown up? Yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, earlier we were talking about Suella Braverman, who, when she was Home Secretary, did her fair share of demonizing protesters mm -hmm. and stuff. Yeah. Um, so, like, you know, obviously we have condemned political violence. And I've said that, obviously, I can understand the reasons why some you know, MPs would want security. Um, but I think that's a different discussion, like you said, from some of the, the circumstances around this and Gaza. Um, and like you said, I think I share some of that skepticism of how this security mm -hmm. discussion and rhetoric is being used. Um, I've seen some MPs, I think Lee Anderson is one of the to what token ones, who describe the, the protesters as terrorists. Mm -hmm. And this happens so often. They, I think there is a concerted effort, especially by the, by the far right, to label anyone who has any sort of compassion or empathy for the Palestinian people um, who, um, uh, in addition, by the way, are, are oftentimes, like you said, there's only been 600 arrests, right? Yeah. There's been a million protesters. So by We're probably talking closer to 2 million by this point if you add them all up. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I mean, I was, I was at one when the vote was, was taking place, when yeah. the whole debacle was going on. P peaceful, right? So I think there is a concerted effort by the far right to demonize the pr protesters as terrorists and i think that we have to be we have to identify that and mm -hmm. call it out for what it for what it is and then also it be doesn't mean we have to minimize the security th threat that's yeah. The, yeah literally you can, you can say both things 100 yeah. yeah i was just going to say which and then that and also recognize that mm -hmm. the the safety uh, of, of mps is important and, we, and you don't want a situation yeah. where they feel vulnerable or that you know under threat so those two things can be yeah. discussed and it, it's one of the bits that makes me most uncomfortable is actually we know that the communities coming out on Gaza are more diverse than they have yes. in previous political really protests. Brexit, I remember hundreds of thousands of people on the streets on Brexit and many got arrested. Again, similar to this, a very small minority, but yes. they did get arrested. Yep. Ukraine, we had 200,000 people in the streets of London, some yep. of whom were arrested, small again. Yep. They weren't called extremists, but when it's... A, a Palestine protest which has a large proportion of Muslim communities in That's it, a right. large proportion of the black community, brown community, all that kind of stuff. Suddenly the language of extremism, security threat, all that kind of stuff right. pops up. We can't ignore that, can we? That, we we absolutely cannot. And like you said, um, I, that's why I, I share the frustration, even though I'm not surprised that with the complete lack of support from the Labour leadership on this issue in terms of forcefully fighting back against the radical right. But yeah, it's it's like you said, it's, it's a dog whistle. It's it's um, they are dog whistling to their base to mm -hmm. say to, and they use those words like, you know, terrorism and terrorist. 
Well, actually, you know, like you just said, the the crowd is very diverse. It turns out that people actually have a lot of sympathy with the Palestinian people and mm -hmm. are against what's happened with the, the excuse me the bombing campaign. So. Yeah, and I think look, uh, like I said, I think there's a serious security concern, and if, if it, for for MPs that should be investigated, if there are any credible threats, no no cost should be spared to protect those MPs and their families. Um, but uh, I also think that it's undeniable that that there is an element of racism, Islamophobia, and also politics at play in the way that these protests um, are discussed. Uh, I just want to get your thoughts lastly before we let you go. I've really enjoyed having you in the studio um, on the story of Lindsay Hoyle. Uh, Plaid Cymru has now backed a motion of no confidence in the Commons yes. Speaker Sir Lindsay Hoyle over his handling of last week's vote on Gaza. Um, this follows the SNP's, I would say, fury towards Lindsay Hoyle. Um, for those who may not know, the SNP had an opposition day debate, which is where they get to set the agenda in the House of Commons. Uh, and traditionally, if the government put in an amendment to their motion, um, then uh, another opposition party's amendment can't be voted on because, in essence, what did happen ends up happening. And that is because Labour is a larger party than the SNP. What ends up happening is it goes from an SNP opposition day to a Labour opposition day, and they end up actually talking about the amendment instead of the main motion. Some parliamentary games at play there, but the, the anger from the SNP was understandable. Mm. Um I just want to ask you quickly: Did you did you see the scenes from the House you know, of Commons during the you know what? Vote? It's about as bad as I've seen the House of Commons ever. Well, you know what? I I saw the scenes on YouTube when I got home from because I was I was out was outside Parliament protesting, mm -hmm. and when I got home, I saw the chaos. When when I was out there, we didn't I didn't yeah you, know, you, we were just you like, didn't miss much trust yeah, me. right yeah and it's a yeah it's a real disappointment. I feel like the tragedy of this all you know the whole thing is that yeah we can get you know caught up in all this parliamentary process whatever. But the actual votes didn't happen and we have a huge bombing campaign against the Palestinian people mm -hmm. and we're not we're, we're in Parliament faffing around about, you know, and yes, I and I, I think that the SNP is right mm -hmm. to be furious. I think that breaking breaking precedent where we fought, where we wanted to have a, a substantive vote on something like this is is ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I think the behavior of um of the entire house i mean many of them said they were embarrassed themselves but i think it yeah. best perpetuates the distance between public discourse and the house of commons and i think we need to be very very clear with this people often think it's a minority uh, who are protesting outside even if it is a million people per yeah. se but the reality is yougov polling and many other polling companies have shown the actual general population right. consensus is with the protesters right. and not with there were 600 people inside that the Palace of Westminster that day, thousands of people outside, and we have definitive political data that suggests that the population of this country is actually with the people outside of that chamber and not with inside, and, and their reaction reflects that. Uh, thank you so much, that Samuel Kay, political commentator, and I'm now calling him political influencer, uh, who's joined me in the studio. Sam, thank you, thank you so much uh, for joining us. We're going to continue on this topic um, of Islamophobia within the Conservative Party that's been dominating the news this week. Uh, we're going to continue that after this. Fubar Radio presents The Dating Show. So we have got the incredible Sunita. How does Sunita whittle down the people she wants to talk to to the people she doesn't? What's your criteria? Well, you've got to be an adult. Um, <laughs> okay. That's always a good start. Always a good start. But when I'm an adult, not just like 18, you've got to be like not young enough to be my child. Um, <laughs> you have to ideally be London-based, because I am. Yeah. Although I don't mind if you've got a country pad, that would be nice. So at the minute we're going with age and location are important. Age and location are good. Every Friday from 6pm. FUBAR Radio. Welcome back. This is Ali Milani on Politics Uncensored at FUBAR Radio. We've been talking to the wonderful Samuel K, political commentator. Uh, you can uh, follow Sam on Twitter and on all social media platforms um he's he's got some brilliant stuff that he puts out so i do recommend going and following him. i think it's samuel k official um on twitter that you can go and follow him on but we're continuing on the story of islamophobia and it's the story that's been dominating the news this week according to a new study more than half of tory members in a poll say islam is a threat to british way of life it follows comments made by lee anderson who claimed islamist had gotten control of sadiq khan and he had given our capital away to extremists. Anderson has refused to apologise for the comments and has since been suspended from the party. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, official spokesperson, said that whilst the language used was wrong, he didn't believe Anderson was a racist. Sadiq Khan has urged Sunak to call the 
remarks racist and Islamophobic, stating that Anderson had poured petrol on the fire of hatred. We've seen commentator after commentator, actually political MP, uh, Tory MP after Tory MP in the media this week, all of whom pretty much have refused to even say the word Islamophobia. Well, joining us now, we have Mohammed Amin, former chairman of the Conservative Muslim Group, who resigned from the party in 2019 after Boris Johnson was elected leader. Mohammed, thank you so much for joining us. Can you give us your initial reactions to what Lee Anderson has said uh, about Sadiq Khan? Good afternoon, Ali. Well, Lee Anderson was basically attacking Sadiq Khan in a way that he would not have attacked him if Sadiq Khan had not been a Muslim. He accused Khan of giving over control of London to Islamists, to his mates, and that with Khan being a Muslim, there is a clear understanding from everybody who hears those remarks that he's getting at Khan because Khan is a Muslim. And that is anti-Muslim bigotry. And if you understand Islamophobia to mean anti-Muslim hatred, prejudice, and bigotry, then Clearly, his remarks were Islamophobic. Can I ask, Mohammed? You you were a member uh, of the Conservative Party, chairman of the Conservative Muslim Group. Um, I assume you still identify yourself and your general politics as a conservative in the traditional sense of the word. But you felt the need to leave the party. Why is that? Well, uh, not only did I leave the party during the general election campaign of 2019, I didn't want to sit on the sidelines any longer. And so I joined the Liberal Democrats, and I've been a grassroots Liberal Democrat ever since, although I'm mm -hmm. not speaking to the Liberal Democrats tonight, for example. Sure. Yeah. I was a Conservative Party member for 36 years. I never felt that the leadership of the Conservative Party was either racist or anti-Muslim. However, there were many grassroots Conservative Party members who were both racist and anti-Muslim, my view is that the best way to eventually drive those, get rid of those people, is for more Muslims to join the Conservative Party. And that view hasn't changed. I left the Conservative Party because I considered Boris Johnson to be morally unfit to be Prime Minister, and I didn't want to be a member of a party that chose him as its leader. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, you talk about your experience um, with uh, conservative members um, from uh, at all stages, and you felt that while the leadership might not have been Islamophobic, you certainly experienced some Islamophobia yourself. Can you tell us a little bit about those experiences no, and what that was like? Actually, not my awareness of anti-Muslim prejudice and racism in amongst Conservative Party members comes from things like the survey from Hope Not Hate you just mm -hmm. talked about the. There was a similar survey that Hope Not Hate commissioned in 2019. There have been other surveys of Conservative Party members. There are Conservative local activists, councillors who have been regularly in the media with anti-Muslim remarks and been sanctioned for it. That's where it comes from. Mm -hmm. At a purely personal level, I have not encountered anti-Muslim prejudice against myself. However, mm. that's partly because of certain characteristics about me. At its simplest, I'm clean-shaven, I don't have a beard. Mm -hmm. I wear a suit and tie, I don't normally dress the way that people dress in the Indian subcontinent, for example. Uh, you get far more prejudice directed against Muslim women, particularly if they're wearing hijab, uh, even more so, of course, if they're wearing niqab and burqa. So it's important not to not to form the false impression that just because I haven't experienced it personally, it doesn't, doesn't mean exist. I'm extremely aware that it do does exist. I've been approached when I was chairman of the Conservative Muslim Forum by many people inside the party, Muslims, who had experienced anti-Muslim prejudice. Mm -hmm. And because we were not a formal part of the complaints process, I always used to say to them, make a formal complaint. But the complaints process run by the Conservative Party was wholly inadequate. Yeah. So I want to ask you that that's that's um, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you've made that clarification and made that point um, before you resigned and in your time as the chairman of the conservative Muslim group. How did the conservative party as a machinery take Islamophobia, anti-Muslim bigotry when you raised it? Because I know because me and you have done media appearances together previous to this, that you had spoken about this form of racism prior to you leaving the party. How was that received? My clear perception, and this included 
meetings of one and one or two and one with the party chairman at that time, Brandon Lewis, is that the leadership wished that the problem would go away, but didn't want to get didn't want to take the actions that seriously dealing with this would entail, which would involve excluding members, suspending members and keeping them suspended. It was always a conflict between, in my, in my view, between trying to do the right thing and trying to get more local councillors elected, etc. And a good example is the Zach Goldsmith mayoral campaign of 2016 when he was trying to paint Sadiq Khan as a sort of Muslim extremist. What David Cameron as party leader should have done was to stamp on Zach Goldsmith very hard, no matter what that did to Zach Goldsmith's electoral prospects. Instead, Cameron basically sort of tried to ignore it or even rode in behind him at one stage when he was talking about an extreme, uh, an allegedly extremist imam. And it's that and I, it's not because I think that Cameron was in any way personally Islamophobic or anti-Muslim, but he wanted to, a Conservative to win the London mayoral election, and he was mm -hmm. willing to put all issues of principle to one side to try to achieve that. So in a sense, would it be fair to say that it was seen as a little bit of an inconvenience politically? Yes, very much so. Yeah. Uh, I, I, there was the Conservative, during the 2019 leadership election campaign, uh, Sajid Javid, managed to bounce all the other candidates into agreeing to have an inquiry into Islamophobia in the Conservative Party. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that. For, for listeners listening, uh, Mohammed, if I may, for listeners yeah. listening, during one of the debates, I remember very, very clearly Sajid Javid on TV mentioned that there was a problem uh, and that everybody on stage would agree to investigating that problem and everybody nodded along, but nothing really happened following that. Yep, what happened was that Boris Johnson straight away started to backpedal, kick it into the long grass, as they say. Eventually, an inquiry was launched with very tightly drawn terms of reference to ensure that the inquiry couldn't cause any problems for the party. Uh, the, the term the, it was also broadened into looking at the party's complaints process as a whole, rather than specifically about Islamophobia. It's conducted by Swaran Singh, who I spent an hour talking to over Zoom, because by then it was the pandemic. I think he's a really nice man. He did his best within his terms of reference. I'm quoted a couple of times in his report, but frankly, nothing meaningful has happened since. Mm -hmm. And the Conservative Party drew the terms of reference of that inquiry in such a way as to avoid the risk of anything serious happening. Okay, and uh, Mohammed, if I may, I want to ask you a little bit about the state of the Conservative Party now. I recognise that you're a Liberal Democrat member now, an activist, um, but you, like you said, you did spend 36 years as a Conservative Party member, and you were the chairman of the Conservative Muslim Group. Um, in the past, you mentioned that you you never really did feel that that there was serious anti-Muslim hatred at the leadership of the Conservative Party, but since Boris Johnson's election in 2019, I think this is a very different Conservative Party. Some draw parallels to, to Donald Trump's sort of colonization of the Republican Party. But now we have very prominent Conservative politicians like Suella Braverman, um, uh, people like Lee Anderson, Jacob Rees-Mogg and others, many of whom have um, at best said, you know, controversial, divisive things about Muslims at worst go into full frontal Islamophobia. So I just want to ask you now, your view now, uh, do you think that the Conservative Party is an Islamophobic party? Uh, no, I don't. And even Mr. Johnson, I was often asked about Mr. Johnson because I was extremely critical about his article in the Telegraph where he compared Muslim women wearing the carbon burqa to letter boxes and bank robbers. I was critical because I believe he wrote that article knowing that it would cause lead to Muslim women on the streets being attacked, but he didn't care because the article positioned him the way he wanted to be positioned with the, the membership of the Conservative Party because he knew there was a leadership election coming up. But did I think Johnson himself had anti-Muslim views? I had no reason to believe that. And again... Wait, how does that work? He wrote something knowing that Muslim women could be physically attacked on the streets. Correct. But you still don't believe that he had anti-Muslim hatred personally? Correct. 
Absolutely. How do you I score the two things? I believe that he has anti-Muslim hatred. I need evidence, and I have never seen any evidence. To I that mean, isn't that. writing something so abhorrent as Muslim women being letterboxes, knowing that it leads to increase in Islamophobic hate crime to Muslim women on the streets, how is that not evidence? It's All evidence the evidence you need. It's evidence of a really bad human being who doesn't care about other people and will let other people get injured to advance his political career. But that's not the same as saying that he hates Muslims. Um, okay. Um, I'm shocked to hear you say that, to be honest. And what leads you to believe that the Conservative Party now isn't Islamophobic? Because, I mean, they've had Lee Anderson, I mean, to their credit, have withdrawn the whip. Suella Braverman has, has made similar comments around Islamists taking over Britain and being in control of Britain. You've had a swathe of MPs now saying what happened to Lee Anderson was wrong and, and, and he shouldn't have had the whip suspended. Clearly, Islamophobia, at the very best, isn't taken seriously at worst, is, is griped the Conservative Party. So what leads you to saying that they're not Islamophobic? I, I don't want to defend Suella Braverman. Uh, she has extremely inflammatory views about uh, all kinds of ethnic minorities and our society's multiculturalism and integration, which are quite peculiar because, of course, her own life is testament to how well integration is working in the UK. But she is not the leadership of the Conservative Party. She she was Home Secretary, but she's now a backbench MP. I, the leadership of the Conservative Party is Rishi Sunak and the Cabinet. And even Jacob Rees-Mogg, who is a person I... I disagree with most, almost everything that Jacob Rees-Mogg stands for in politics. He wrote an article in The Spectator last week explaining why it was entirely wrong to take away Shimima Begum's British citizenship. Yeah, but, uh, the real Mohammed, world is more complicated but, than you make up. But Mohammed, we've got the former Home Secretary, the former Deputy Chair of the Conservative Party, both of whom have been in the spotlight this week alone because of their comments. Rishi Sunak, we all know, you know, became prime minister <clears throat> and took the leadership of the Conservative Party without a vote from their membership. He lost to Liz Truss and she had to resign following. You and I, and I think everyone listening knows that Rishi Sunak is not the establishment of the Conservative Party. He might hold the position of prime minister, but there are far more uh, Liz Trusts, Suella Bravermans and Lee Andersons in the, both the PLP and the Conservative Party membership than there are Rishi Sunaks. So how can there not be a serious Islamophobia crisis and as an Islamophobic party when their establishment say things so horrendous that you have no, you, admitted you to. You mentioned Liz Truss, for example. I have no reason to believe that Liz Truss is anti-Muslim. Other than being sat in CPAC next to Steve Bannon, who has said horrendous Islamophobic things and sat, sitting on a platform with him. Other than that. Uh, she's certainly gone downhill since she stopped being prime minister. And I So, what, <laughs> Mohammed, what does it take for you to call someone Islamophobic? Do they have to physically pull a hijab off someone's head? No, I need clear evidence that that person holds anti-Muslim views. Lee Anderson has, been, what he said about Sadiq Khan is a is a clear indication that I think he potentially is anti-Muslim. Although he also talks about his many sort of Muslim constituents, I I do not accuse people of things. Do you think Suala, Would you say Suala Braverman is an Islamophobe? I'm not even sure of that. I'm. Uh... I'm running out of words. Terrible human being, but uh, I would, I would, I would. You need strong evidence before you accuse so, somebody of being anti-Muslim. And the, these comments aren't enough for you. No, that, not necessarily. And uh, so, looking forward, just across away from the Conservative Party, because you know you are a Liberal Democrat member now, I think, and you you said yes, you, don't, you don't you don't want to you don't want to sit on the sidelines. How prob how much of a problem do you think Islamophobia is, not just in the Conservative Party, but in British politics as a whole? Uh, Islam. Anti-Islamophobia, anti-Muslim prejudice, hatred is an issue in British politics. Uh, it's important at the same time to maintain a sense of proportion. Uh, every year that goes by, we have more Muslims in public life, more Muslims in parliament, more Muslim journalists, more Muslims at the top end of the legal profession, the accountancy profession. And the UK is a great country in which to be a Muslim. I'd much rather live as a Muslim in the UK than live in Pakistan, for example, especially if you look at Ahmadiyya Muslims, the way they are treated in Pakistan compared to the way they're treated here. So it's important to maintain a sense of proportion. Mm. Look, I, I think we agree on, on I, I, I also have a more hopeful view of this country than I think most. And, <clears throat> uh, you know, I tend to believe that the vast majority of the British population are um, are tolerant, good people who who 
have no problem with a diverse community and um, I actually think it's the, the political end that, that, that lets them down. Um, and I appreciate you, Mohammed, uh, coming on uh, and speaking about uh, both your personal experiences, but also your view um, on the Conservative Party and British politics as a whole. Thank you so much. That was Mohammed Amin, former chairman of the Conservative Muslim Group, who resigned from the party in 2019 after Boris Johnson was elected leader. He joined us to talk about Lee Anderson and Suella Braverman and Islamophobia in general amongst the Conservative Party and beyond. Uh, we're not we're taking a quite a quick shift. We spoke to Sam earlier around. Um, the Palestine protests and the political reactions to them. And um, the reason I'm saying we're taking a slight shift is because I think there is an element to Islamophobia to the way this is being discussed and racism to the way this is being discussed as well. But we're just going to be joined by Ben Jamal, director of Palestine Solidarity Campaign, as we discuss the way that the protesters have been talked about by politicians and political commentators uh, and the media overall. Uh, ben is going to join us after these messages. Hey! Fubar Radio presents Access All Areas. Mark from Married at First Sight UK. See, at the wedding, you told Sean you were 26, but you're actually 36. So drop in that decade. We ain't gone one or two years either side. What was going for you, Ed, when you thought, I'm going to shave off 10 years. A third of your life. (laughs) It was instant reaction. As soon as anyone says to me, how old are you? I'm like 26. I just stopped counting after 26. Would I have told him? Probably not. Ever? Well, maybe when we're 80 years old and we've got the grandkids running around. And Except like, you wouldn't be 80 years old. You'd be, you'd be 90. 90. Yeah, you'd be 90. <laughs> I'd be 26 <laughs> I'd be going around the corner for some more injections. Politics on Censor. Joining me now, the former leader of the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, MP. And there you are stood with hundreds of thousands of people at Glastonbury singing out Jeremy Corbyn. What is that like? It was quite extraordinary. It was an amazing experience and I was very pleased we did it. Um, we wrote the office, we got very excited about Glastonbury. Every single person in the office thought it was necessary for them to be at Glastonbury. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they did. <laughs> yeah. Every single one said yeah. it was really necessary yeah. for them to yeah. come. I'm friends with uh, a fair few exes and, and I think you can be friends with an ex but I, I genuinely do. But I do think that he's Timing is everything with that. Well, it, I think it depends what you cast as a friend. Yeah, Are you I talking mean, about you know someone you're going to hang out with on your sofa? Like if you've already shagged, you know, isn't that a bit weird? Or is no, it I think weird? that's a different level of friend. Uh, I think that's a different level. Of, you can be friends with someone. You can't be like best fucking friends with someone. I mean, I've got exes that I talk to about their current partners and, and whatever else, and they'll tell me about that sort of stuff. But I wouldn't say, oh, do you want to come over for fucking Chinese and chill on the sofa? You're listening to Food Bar Radio. Welcome back to Sally Malani at Politics Uncensored. We've been talking Islamophobia, Palestine protesters and more. And joining me now, we have Ben Jamal, director of the Palestine Solidarity Campaign. Uh, we've been talking, Ben, uh, about some of the comments from political leadership about uh, the Palestine protests that you have been instrumental alongside others in organizing. I think we've had 10 now mainstream ones, nine or 10 in London. I think between a million to two million people overall has joined these protests. Only about 600 have been arrested. So the arrests in proportion are really minuscule. I want to get your reaction to the way that these protesters have been spoken about by politicians across the board, from extremists to things like mob rule being said, uh, to the general, uh, you know, conversation being one around intimidation and subversion and others. Uh, Can I get your reaction to the way political leaders have spoken about Palestinian protests and protesters. Yeah, um, yeah. Good evening, Ali. Um, I mean, yes, and I mean, first of all, it's worth saying any anybody who has spent uh, any time campaigning for the rights of the Palestinian people will be very familiar uh, with the various efforts that are made uh, to, to try to delegitimize. First of all, that you know, the heart of this is delegitimize. Uh, the Palestinian struggle for liberation, uh, but to demonize those who are advocating for Palestinian rights and campaigning for Palestinian rights through various sort of narratives. And historically, there's always been an attempt to uh, to smear people with the accusation of support for terrorism, um, or obviously to use the conflation of anti-Semitism with legitimate advocacy for Palestinian rights to define, you know, any advocacy, in particular things like calling for boycott, divestment and sanctions or 
accurately labeling Israel as a state practicing the crime of apartheid to try and define those as as hateful forms of speech. Now, this has all been, this is very familiar. It's been on steroids in the past few months. Why? Uh, because of the scale of the mobilizations. And what we have seen, as you've said, in terms of the national marches we've been organizing, we're on our 10th national march. They've had unprecedented levels of people attending. You know, the largest march on November the 11th, we estimate there are a million people there. Um, most of them have had hundreds of thousands attending. And this has been an evidence of the complete disconnect between, we think, a very strong body of public opinion and the people coming on these demonstrations are coming from all walks of life, all age demographics, all corners of society, all face and none. Um, the disconnect between that um, and how politicians are responding by continuing uh, to support Israel diplomatically, politically, militarily and financially. So there is a, a so what we've seen as a response to that is an attempt to try to delegitimize de these protests and suppress them through the sort of rhetoric you've been talking about. Uh, we, we I think on our second protest in October, we had James Cleverly, then Foreign Secretary, saying there is no purpose to these protests. They should stop. We had the former Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, obviously uh, calling them hate marches. And then before November the 11th, when she knew full well we were not going to be marching anywhere near the Senator, uh, suggesting that actually we intended to desecrate were the words used, that this was a march intending to desecrate um, the Cenotaph and disrupt Remembrance Day preparations. Uh, we've had in the past couple of days, James cleverly telling us it's time for us to stop because we, we've, we've said what we need to say. And now, of course, we've got the Home Secretary talking about mob rule and other members of the Conservative Party and the political establishment are talking about Islamist hate marches. None of this bears any relation to the reality. And interestingly, mm -hmm. the police, which have been employing under great political pressure uh, to suppress these marches, to take action to stop them, have been in increasingly heavy handed in their policing. But the rate of arrest has still been extremely low. And in the evidence they gave to the Home Affairs Select Committee, two senior police officers, one of them the Assistant Commissioner of the Met, were forced to acknowledge that these have been overwhelmingly peaceful and orderly uh, marches. So, you know, what we've got at the moment, as I say, is an attempt to suppress the movement. Uh, but by doing so, and this is part and parcel of a wider attempt to suppress protests, to really threaten the right to peaceful assembly and call democratic freedoms. Mm. So I just want to make clear, because I did in previous um, elements uh, of the show as well, by by us saying that there is there is a sort of nefarious um, element to the way that these protesters are being spoken about political leaders, we are in no way saying that, for example, um, the security of MPs isn't an issue, because if there are credible threats on securities of MPs, they should be investigated. In fact, I think there are just as many threats coming from the far right as they are coming from other areas that should be investigated. We know that anti-Semitism um, is a serious problem in the UK, has been on the rise as, uh, as a result of um, surv uh, surveys and polling, and that should absolutely be addressed and no cost should be spared, as has Islamophobia. We've seen a 335% rise in Islamophobia. We're not ignoring any elements of those. They should all be paid attention to. But what I want to say is, there is a clear difference, in my opinion, the way that politicians speak about these protests as opposed to the Brexit ones, for example. We saw hundreds of thousands of people, uh, an extreme pressure being placed on politicians to to act in a certain way over Brexit. Similar in Ukraine, we had 200,000 people on the streets in Ukraine. Why is it Palestine protests are being spoken about in this way? Um, and is it simply just because politicians are so out of step with the general pub population's view? Uh, what What is the purpose behind Palestine protests being branded as these sort of extremist and security threats. I mean, we spoke earlier with Sam. We think one of the elements is the fact that Palestine protests are a little bit more diverse. You have more Muslims that turn out, more black and brown communities that turn out. And as a result, there's a sort of Islamophobic racist elements to that. Do you think that's the case? Yeah, and look, you're right in relation to the double standard. We saw a very cute example of this in the sort of narratives before um, the protests on November the 11th, when you you'll remember there was this sort of um, totally disingenuous moral pa panic 
and social panic whipped up, which which solely served really to mobilize the far right, um, that there was an attempt uh, to desecrate the cenotaph and that it was extraordinary. It was unprecedented for people to be marching on the Saturday before Remembrance Sunday. What we were able to point out was that actually in every single year, apart from uh, the year of COVID, there have been some form of demonstration taking place on the Saturday before Remembrance Sunday, most notoriously in 2018, mm -hmm. when uh, the 100th anniversary of the armistice, when there was a large pro-Brexit march. Yeah. Uh, that and Ben, I, I, th I think the particular irony around that was not marching close to Armistice Day, calling for an armistice. I know, exactly. Um, and look, you're right, there's a number of motivations. So one of them is... Um, you know, that there is across both of our main political parties at the moment uh, an agenda of complicit support for Israel's oppression of the Palestinian people. Um, that's been decades long. So that's part of the agenda, trying to suppress. There's a complete disconnect between where the politicians sit on the issue and broader public opinion. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I want to ask you, uh, if I may, I don't have you for, a, for an enormous no. amount of time. I want to ask you about that. Because, um, you know, I think there's an element of the politicians knowing that because mm. just in the ceasefire vote, we had 600 or so MPs inside parliament and thousands of protesters outside of parliament. And all of the political evidence shows that the general population of this country agree with the thousands of people outside and not with the 600 or so, not all of them, obviously, but the majority sure. of the 600 or so inside is an element of it that the politicians know that they're out of step with the general population. Yeah, and look, there was a lot of commentary um, in, in the last week that some of your listeners may have picked up in relation to comments that I had made. Um, and one of them was where I had said there's a reason why politicians are fearful at the moment, uh, and it is because of the pressure we're exerting. Now, that was translated as me somehow um, exalting politicians feeling security threats, and that's absolute nonsense. And I echo what you said. We should take the issue of um, politicians' security um, seriously. Uh, but the point I was making is what they're fearful of is that this is going to cost them at the ballot box. That's mm -hmm. particularly prevalent in the Labour Party. They are very, very conscious. The shifts we're starting to see, not far enough, but the manoeuvrings going on in the Labour Party with Keir Starmer trying to pretend that he was voting for an immediate ceasefire but putting all sorts of conditional clauses in. But why did he feel the need to use the language around immediate ceasefire because he's feeling the pressure um, from MPs who are coming back and saying, we are going to lose votes on this. This, you know, we are going to lose some crucial seats because of our position on this uh, and because this is unsustainable. So, so you're right. There's an absolute disconnect and, and politicians are, all, are aware of that. There's also other factors going on. I think for the Conservatives, they're also, I think the comments that have been made this week are part and parcel of the sort of culture war. And there's deeply Islamophobic narratives as well surrounding this. So an attempt, first of all, um, to say inaccurately, it's only the Muslim community who are marching on this, which isn't true. But even if it was, the other narratives that are being used, that then therefore that inherently means that these people marching must be Islamists who are supportive of terrorism. Um, that's very much, I think, the Conservatives trying to play to a certain ba base, which is why we also saw all of the prevarications, despite the suspensions of Lee Anderson, mm -hmm. um, we, we saw Conservative politicians yeah. obviously completely unwilling to define what he said as Islamophobic, and of course no action taken against Suella, Suella Braverman, whose comments this week were just as bad uh, as Lee Anderson's. Ben, uh, if I may ask final question in about 30 seconds, because I know you, we need to let you go. Um, you've been part of organizing these protests um, and away from the, the, the actual subject matter, there have been uh, clampdowns on the rights of protest and the way protests are organized and done over the years under this conservative government, mm -hmm. which is a threat to our democracy. How concerned are you about generally the right to protest in the UK? Well, I think there's been a very very broad concern and, uh, and and under this government uh, you know increasingly repressive legislation most notoriously in this domain well obviously the policing bill and the public order act 
what we've seen around these protests are the routine uses, usage of Section 12 and Section 14 orders. Um, to, and, and actually, as I said, the rate of arrests mm -hmm. using those orders has been incredibly low, but they are, they are designed to create a climate of sort of criminalization, most notoriously. We've had on a number of occasions the police putting down Section 12 orders that say, if we announce an assembly time for the march at 12 o'clock, and people know that means get there by 12, we will aim to march not too long after that, but that's a good time to arrive. The police have been putting orders down saying if you if you attend the march before 12, you're in violation of a Section 12 order and risk being arrested. Now, they're not going to enforce that, but it's designed to create a climate of mm. intimidation to to so there's a yeah there's a there's a general worry about that. Uh, thank you so much. That was director of Pal uh, of the Palestine Solidarity Campaign, Ben Jamal. Ben, thank you so much uh, for joining Thanks, us sorry. remotely uh, to talk about this uh, very very important issue. Um, I'm going to be bringing you uh, the last elements of the show as we kind of round up what we're speaking about around Islamophobia, around these Palestine protests, and more next. Follow us at Politics Uncensored UK for more from the show. Fubar Radio presents The Dating Show. So we have got the incredible Sunita. How does Sunita whittle down the people she wants to talk to to the people she doesn't? What's your criteria? Well, you've got to be an adult. Um, okay. That's always a good start. Always a good start. But when I'm in a adult, not just like 18, you've got to be like not young enough to be my child. Um, <laughs> you have to ideally be London-based, because I am. Yeah. Although I don't mind if you've got a country pad, that would be nice. So at the minute we're going with age and location are important. Age and location are good. Every Friday from 6pm. FUBAR Radio. Welcome back. This is Ali Maloney, our Politics Uncensored on FUBAR Radio. Uh, we've just had Ben Jamal, director of the Palestine Solidarity Campaign, talking to us about these Palestine protests. We've spoken about Lee Anderson, Suella Braverman and the Islamophobia row. We had Samuel Kay, political commentator, in to talk about these issues as well. And I just want to say on the end of the show, look, no one is as concerned as I am about the th security threat surrounding members of parliament and political actors. And I say that very comfortably because I was talking about this before any of these guys were. Um, in fact, I wrote a whole chapter about it in, in my book, uh, The Unlikely Candidate, can be bought at all good bookstores. Um, and so I've been talking about this issue longer than most in the political scene. Uh, and no expense should be spared uh, to protect our MPs. In fact, I probably, I probably lean on to the side of MPs should be given protection. Um, and I'm equally as concerned around the level of racism in this country, including Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism has been on the rise over a thousand percent in this country. And there's no doubt that while we debate these issues, uh, Palestine discussions can veer into anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. And we should make sure that the Jewish populations feel safe in this country. Um, when issues like Gaza happen, that Muslim communities feel safe in this country as these issues happen. But we must also be clear-eyed that some of the discussions that are happening around extremism, around mob rule and intimidation of members of parliament and political actors is Islamophobic. There is no question that the association of extremism and security threats to a protesting group that is largely viewed as Muslim uh, as from black and brown communities, minority communities, that that association isn't done by accident. And there is also no question in my mind that there are politicians who know that they're out of step with the general population and are using this narrative to distract and dissociate with their actions in Parliament. All of these things can be said at the same time and um, can be held, these positions can be held simultaneously. Um, and it's very, very important that we have these conversations because the right to protest is fundamental to our democracy. And if you give these nefarious actors an inch, they'll take a mile. It'll start with Palestine protests, but then it will extend to Ukraine and to Brexit and to all the other issues that we've been uh, campaigning on over the years. And that's why it's been so important to talk about this topic and why I appreciate our guests joining us. And that includes Mohammed Amin, who was the former chairman and conservative Muslim net, the former chairman 
of the Conservative Muslim group um, who came to talk to us about Islamophobia in the Conservative Party. He's now a Liberal Democrat member. Ben Jamal, Director of Palestine Solidarity Campaign, joined us at the end of the show to talk about the government pushing back against pro-Palestine protests. And Samuel Kay, political commentator, and um, I have now dubbed him political influencer, who has joined us. Uh, you can follow me at Ali Milani UK uh, on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok. You can follow the show at Politics Uncensored UK. And we are Fubar Radio on all platforms. Join us next week as we continue to talk about the top political issues of the day. I've been Ali Milani. This is Politics Uncensored. Salams. <laughs>